Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I usually speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. But we have a very special episode today. Yiren Liu is joining me in our podcast studio. Yiren is a software engineer and also happens to be an amazing journalist and writer. Uh, she's written for lots of places, including The Atlantic and The New York Times. And what got me interested in Yiren's work is an incredible deep look that she did on WeChat, the game changer app that I think is going to transform retail as we know it. Hi, Yiren. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you wrote a great, I mean, I hate to even call it a story because it was just like, I read that and piece you did on WeChat and everything, every little detail in it. There were so many things in there that I found interesting. But by the time I finished it, my first question to you is going to be, why did you want to go so deep on WeChat? And what is it that people really don't understand about the power and scale of this app? Yeah, I think that people in the U.S. will typically describe it as sort of a a mishmash of various different apps. Um, I don't think that fully captures um, basically what what this app really means in like the day-to-day life of Chinese people. Um, Yeah, it's just like a very, very high percentage of internet traffic in China um, goes through WeChat. 35%. Yeah, it's 35%. And um, yeah, people use it for everything, for utilities, for gaming, obviously to communicate with their family and friends um, and to do business. Um, and I felt like there's obviously been a lot of stuff going on in Chinese tech in the last couple of years. And that's been really, really exciting. But I think what has really enabled a lot of that to happen is is sort of WeChat. Um, and a lot of the things that have been built on top of WeChat, like WeChat Pay mm-hmm. um, and the mini programs, which is sort of what I focused on right. um, in the article. So let's go back to the beginning. How did WeChat kind of start? How did WeChat kind of begin in China? And sort of what do you think? Because it's been around for a while, but there were a few sort of key moments, and you described them in the article, that really kind of made it feel like, okay, this is moving towards Game Changer. Take yeah. us through some of the history. So the app was founded in uh, 2011. Um, so a lifetime ago. Yes, <laughs> which is, you know, the very beginning of the mobile era. Um, so I think the Apple App Store was founded in like 2009. And also in the very beginning of an era when the China basically kicked out all the U.S. tech companies. Um, I think that also happened in 2009 um, and sort of really like establishing its own tech industry um it was basically kind of like a random like side idea by um this guy who had uh started an an email company an email startup and he this email startup was acquired by tencent which is now the parent company of wechat and he sort of noticed that um he, he actually saw this like canadian chat app called kick um, oh, I how, remember. Yeah. Kick. And how they had gained like a million users in 15 days. And he was like, wow, this is going to be a total game changer. And at the time, Tencent already owned QQ, which is like an existing Chinese social network. Um, and QQ had its own chat app, but that was primarily like PC based. Um, and uh, so this guy's name is Long. Um, he, he basically realized that, OK, we're moving into the mobile era and we're going to need a chat app for that. Um, so he, he sort of, um, emailed the CEO of Tencent, Pony Ma, and he was like, okay, let's try to build a chat app. So it was very much experimental. Um, initially I think for the first year, the app didn't really take off. Um, they were really lucky though. They, 
and smart. They they put in a lot of very mobile friendly features in the beginning. Um, they had like the voice message, which was pretty unique. Um, and just like a lot of different features, which were pretty specific to the mobile experience. Um, so that was in 2011 and it sort of like grew precipitously. Mm-hmm. Um, and after maybe like 2012, 2013. And, and it, was a, it was a chat app for individuals. And then eventually uh, what happened is they started introducing other features like official accounts, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like Facebook pages. Um, that was for businesses. And well, so originally it was like a lot of, you know, you're like a famous individual and, you know, if you wanted to have a more public facing profile, um, you could have these official accounts, but yeah, um, eventually it also made sense for like McDonald's or a Starbucks or, you know, whatever kind of business to also have an official account and you could subscribe to it and they could send you like messages just within like the Mm -hmm. messaging app part of WeChat. So the trajectory up until now Mm -hmm. is very similar to a lot of sort of other, you know, social networking, let's just call them apps elsewhere sort of yeah early day i mean back to sort of friendster <laughs> on to mm-hmm. sort of facebook in the early days start as individual networking mess or messaging mm-hmm. and then you know the brands they always come and yeah. then the brands come what at what point did sort of do you feel that it kind of became more than that yeah i think probably like the biggest thing for wechat i think was wechat pay mm-hmm. um and I think this was like 2014, 2015, something like that. Um, and I think that really, really gave them the last missing piece of the puzzle. Um, and I think that's part of the reason, the the fact that Google and Facebook haven't really been able to come out with their own um, payment service or one that is really widely adopted, I think is part of the reason why we haven't seen them achieve this like super app dominance that right. we see on WeChat. Um, payments is obviously crucial it's like a crucial part of any sort of like retail experience. Um, if you want to do business on WeChat, um, having people be able to pay for it is like really, really important. And I think that really like that, I feel like was a very, very important development for the company. And you mentioned this, the article, but it sort of started as this, it, it was kind of like the red envelope, like Hangba idea, right? Mm-hmm. That like you can just... I'm curious about what was happening kind of because you're mentioning all these like technological changes in the app. What was happening culturally? Were people okay with this? Because I think a large reason why social payments have been relegated to kind of Venmo really um, here in the U.S. or even just in sort of Western countries has been just people sort of feel very weird about combining what they see as sort of intimate networking with something as important as their money. And that doesn't seem to have been the case with WeChat. They didn't run into that. What was happening kind of culturally or widely that helped aid and abet this growth? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different things. Um, Yeah, so like the home ball thing, the red envelope thing was very joking. And I feel like now it's become a thing where like every Monday, you know, like maybe one person in a WeChat chat group will just be like giving out home balls. It's no longer restricted to the Chinese Lunar New Year. But uh, I also think that there were just some like uh, demographic dynamics in China at the time, including like there are hundreds of millions of Chinese people who were unbanked, who did not have bank accounts. And it was a very cash heavy society. Like if you went to do business, you would bring stacks of like 100 RMB notes, which is roughly like 12 or 15 dollars. And so obviously like mobile payments presented like a huge 
convenience mm-hmm. um, and also additional security. Um, and so people talk about this leapfrogging phenomenon in Chinese tech where one of the reasons why China has sort of leaped ahead in a lot of these areas like mobile payments is because what they had wasn't like good enough like in the United States where sure. we already had credit cards. Um, they were like a purely like cash society. And so mobile payments just presented a, a huge improvement. Um, yeah, you know, and the government also um, basically a, took a very laissez-faire approach to this, which I think is also different because oh, yeah. um, because WeChat um, and Alibaba as well, which owns the other main mobile payments app, Alipay in China, they basically became banks, right? And the government didn't really require them to, for instance, have very high like amounts of this money like in reserves sure. or any of this sort you of stuff. You didn't have that sort would... of FDIC layers, yes. essentially. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think that allowed the ecosystem to flourish without sure. too much intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if there was anything really specifically cultural about how Chinese people approach money. It, it, I, I do think that it is has become a lot more casual, this idea of like giving your friends money and, and gaming as well, like uh, money as a part of the gamification of like right. getting money, I think is also very appealing. Sure. Getting money is great. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kind of something earlier, which is, OK, so you had you already had this networking slash messaging app. Then you added payments. And there to me, the obvious sort of path lies ahead, which is commerce. Yes, you can pay for things using WeChat, but also for businesses, for the it seems like in a very unique way that still isn't quite here yet. It's like social commerce is sort of starting to happen on Instagram a bit, but it's nowhere as seamless as when you go on WeChat and you can actually just, you can buy things from there. It is it is Amazon meets yeah. Facebook meets payments meets Venmo meets everything. It's that mishmash you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Right at the beginning. At what point did sort of the the commerce element start taking off on WeChat? And what sort of changed, especially because you interviewed a couple sort of business owners for the piece Mm. you did in the Times. And I'm curious about what that looked like and what that path looked like for them to say, okay, I could actually just sell stuff on here. It's easier. Yeah. So, you know, I think I mentioned official accounts and WeChat Mm -hmm. pay. So I think both of those things were like really important for the acceleration of commerce on WeChat. Um, in my article, I talked about WeChat mini programs, which were a much more recent feature. And um, I think what that's really allowed is for people to like sort of build their own mini apps within WeChat. And that's been really, really helpful because you can just do a much higher level of customization. So previously, maybe businesses wanted to build their own standalone native apps and that would be very expensive. Um that's like many programs have really reduced the barrier to entry if you're like a small, medium-sized business in China to accessing like the WeChat market. Sure. So how um, does it work if you're sort of a user going on WeChat? Where do you sort of see this presented and yeah. what does it actually feel like? Um, so you open the WeChat app and it basically looks like a chat app. And then if you sort of scroll down a little bit, then you'll see like many, many programs that you have previously used pop up. Um, but yeah, this is also another difference from the United States, which is that the main entryway to mini programs is usually a QR code. Um, and yet there's a search feature. You can search for mini programs, but there is not an app store for mini programs. There's external app stores that have now, you know, come up, but WeChat itself doesn't provide an app store for mini programs. So typically what will happen is like you'll go to a restaurant, they will have a QR code, 
um, you will scan it and like their menu will pop up or you will go to a grocery store and you will, you know, grocery stores are a little bit different, um, but like you will likely like scan a QR code for an item. Maybe you see it, then you can add it to your like shopping bucket or something like that. I feel like it really makes use of the mobile phone as like sort of an extension, is as something that you always carry with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it, scanner, it's yeah. an information, it's a portal, it's everything. Yeah. And so I think um, uh, it's on Sha Long, who's, uh, was the founder of WeChat, like he sort of explained it as, he actually, you know, even though I use the word platform for WeChat a lot, he doesn't like the word platform. He prefers the word like tool because he feels like what he really wants WeChat to be is something that like, you use when you need it and then like it goes away when you don't need it or like that's what he imagined the mini program feature to be um that if you if you need to do something with with the mini program you scan a QR code it pops up and then it just disappears unlike native mobile apps which stick around even though you might only use them like once a day maybe once a month if it's like the united app um so i think that's like kind of a, a major difference Sounds good. We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. Okay, so we're talking all about the wild world of WeChat. Um, I was worried I wasn't going to get that sentence out without stumbling. You mentioned sort of this idea that that WeChat, you know, likes to be described by its founder, but also just in general as a tool. It's more utility versus something extra that you have that you don't just use it because it's an add-on to your life. It's just part of your life. Were there certain or are there certain kind of categories of kind of retail that haven't managed to sort of work in the WeChat world? Or is everything kind of, does the sort of path to commerce within WeChat preclude any specific categories or or does it not? Because you mentioned grocery and that was surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think that businesses that have a lot of foot traffic really benefit from particular features of WeChat, right? Um, I think there's this question of like, say you're like a new shoe brand and you don't have any existing audience. I think it's it can be difficult to make uh, WeChat mini programs work for you because there's no app store. So how does somebody go about like discovering your there's brand? There's no discoverability yeah. way or path. So that's I think that's a big challenge. Um, so I think typically how brands market themselves in China is through these key opinion leaders, the KOLs. Um, and, and, like, if KOL links your product, then, yeah, WeChat makes it very easy for people to, like, click and buy immediately. But there is this bootstrapping problem of, like, if I'm a new brand and I don't get any foot traffic. Like, if you're a restaurant, you get foot traffic. And so people will, like, um, scan your QR code. They will access your mini program, your official account. And then they will subscribe to it. And then in the future, they will come back to it. Sure. Right. Um, but that initial first access, I think, can be very challenging for brands. Are there, is there anything that brands that specifically, especially ones that you followed, have done that you just find particularly interesting as a way to get around that discoverability problem? Um. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know if I think that it's it's been interesting to look at sort of the advertising space mm-hmm. in China. Um, I follow like for instance McDonald's, and I know that McDonald's has done a lot of. Um, sort of more unique advertising, specifically within um, mini-games. So mini-games are uh, actually one of the most popular kinds of mini-programs. And there's a really, really popular one called Tiao Yi Tiao, which basically means, like, jump. Um, It's very, very simple mobile game. You're just jumping from platform to platform. Mm -hmm. And McDonald's has basically found, like, interesting ways to insert itself into this game. 
Um, like if you if you make it a certain number of levels, you get something free at McDonald's. Hmm. Um, so I think that there are ways that brand. I mean, McDonald's obviously is a brand that people kind of already know and also gets foot traffic. Um, but uh, I think there are like in- inventive ways that brands can sort of try to access different audiences or keep them fresh in people's minds. One of the things here, and you know, we were sort of. Um we were actually talking a lot about, I hate this term, but I'm going to use it, sort of Generation Z, you know, the the generation that's just now entering the workforce and kind of what's different about them. And there's all this research and a lot of research is pretty new and yet, you know, in my opinion, is yet to be sort of borne out. But there is a lot to be said about sort of the the natural kind of antipathy, really, not even apathy to advertising that a lot of sort of younger generation here has. And in some ways, I think that marketers are in this really interesting place globally where they want to be part of consumer lives, but gone are the days where it's okay to advertise. It's like, we don't advertise, we market. We're part of your lives. We're almost like people in your lives versus we're actually marketing to them or getting you to buy things. Is there a similar kind of um, antipathy sort of happening and what does that sort of bear for the future of kind of brands and retailers on a, on a platform like WeChat which is still so personal and still so interwoven because there's a utility approach there is the messaging and intimate my family and friends are on here approach mm-hmm. and then there's oh god all these brands are here now too I mean is that is that a path that feels like this isn't going to work out or is that something that just isn't a problem for them I mean I think display advertising is not really a thing on WeChat Um, and, and insofar as it is the thing, it's for very specific kinds of brands. I think what's much, much more common is this KOL, um, marketing. So if you're a brand, you will pay a key opinion leader to write about your brand. Um, and these are influencers. These are influencers. And, um, yeah, it will be a much more organic experience, frankly. Like, I think that it's a much more, like, integrated experience. In, in general, um, a lot of these people are very good writers. A lot of the influencers are very good writers. And um, they can sort of just give a much more authentic sense of your product and make their audience feel like, I'm your, you know, I'm just a friend of yours. Like, you you happen to like my writing and you happen to like my images and I'm recommending this, like, out of the good of my heart. <laughs> and I think that's, like, a very different kind of experience than encountering tons of display ads the way that we would in Facebook or Instagram. In some ways, kind of the future of advertising yeah. in a way. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I don't know how much we're going to move more towards that in the U.S. I feel like given how expensive Facebook and Instagram have gotten, probably that will happen more and more. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, influencer marketing is kind of like the the biggest thing in China. What's Is there anything different about the KOLs or the influencers there than they are here about how that industry works, about, you know, one of the things we hear here often is like it's not very standardized, it's sort of still pretty like you go you know you approach people there aren't any rate cards or any metrics at work mm. are the are there similar concerns with kind of the chaos in china with brands and retailers because if they're so central to that advertising system yeah i would expect it that it's at least more sophisticated than it is here yeah i imagine that attribution is and i you know i haven't confirmed this but i imagine that attribution is much easier because you're in a closed ecosystem um and if things are happening sort of within wechat then it becomes much more easy to describe like yes this person brought like 100 <laughs> right. sales um or 200 sales or whatever it's not sort um, of putting it out there and hoping yeah. for the best situation yeah. right um and 
Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of Chinese society is still very um, aspirational, you know, um, and a lot of these what the influencer sellings are, are sort of like upper, like upper middle class, um, cosmopolitan, like mm-hmm. urban lifestyle. Um, and I'm not sure that there is as much like antipathy towards the, like the idea of consumerism. Like I think there in, in America, there's almost this sense of like, oh, I don't want to be consumerist. And so you have to cloak a lot of these ads or like influencer marketing and sort of like self-care or some, some, some or sort of purpose. message. Yes. Right. And I think in China, like that's that doesn't really exist. I think it's okay to just want to like buy things. Um, that's still very much a part of the culture. And yeah. I think that's something that's really different. Um yeah, just like if something like looks nice, works, like sure, um, is affordable, then you know I think that that's all great. And that's another point is that it really depends on who your audience is in China um, as well. And I imagine there's been calibrations there because just the level of people's ability to pay is very different than in the United States, right? Right. So I guess my last sort of thing was going to be, you know, a lot of people want to reach sort of the Chinese consumer and want to do it through WeChat. What do what do people get wrong? I think it has to be a particular kind of product. Um, and I think it has to be um, probably in conjunction with one of these these influencers. So the idea that you would just um, create a WeChat mini program or official account and then people would just come without any additional strategy of how you handle the discoverability aspect, it would be, I think, not such a great idea. But that's it. But that makes sense. You you can't, I think that there's a sense of like, build it and they will come. Yeah. That because of the open nature of the app ecosystem here, um, people assume will be the same. Yeah. Uh, I'm here, I'm sure, as well. You also have this problem of, like, well, how do you get people to use your app? Um, I think it really depends on, like, what kind of brand you are and um, whether you already have an audience in China, whether there's already some, like, not... Like, if you're, like, Gucci or you're, like, Prada, like, maybe in China you already um, have name recognition. You don't really need to worry about about that. Yes. Um, But uh, if you are a a much smaller brand... um, then I think that could be a little bit more challenging and knowing your audience, um, knowing which KOLs you probably want to market with. I think all of that's like really important. Amazing. Yuren, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, of course. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer, of course, is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, the Modern Retail Podcast, and leave us a review and a rating. Thanks again for listening.